Good morning. Good morning. Good to, good to see you folks. I, I feel like I'm under interrogation right now. So I didn't do it. Wasn't even there. So <laughs> that's a better thought for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Hopefully everybody has notes. Uh, next Lord's Day morning, we'll be having our, our Christmas coffee hour in, in lieu of uh, our Sunday school. So we'll look uh, forward to that time uh, together. And uh, I want to pray this morning also for uh, Rich Hyman. He had surgery last week. And uh, Lori, just a quick update. I know things went pretty well for him. And, uh, yeah, he's doing well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Okay. Well, let me just read uh, from the notes here. The, the the text at the top just to kind of orient our minds to the the subject we'll be considering, and then we'll just look to the Lord in prayer. Ephesians one eleven. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, uh, having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. And let us pray. Lord, thank you this, this day we can come before a God that is glorious and a God that is holy, a God that is almighty, a God that is merciful and compassionate and kind. We just we thank you so much that we can begin this day by uh, fellowshipping with one another. We, we thank you for the glory of the, the common and the eternal and the joyous salvation that we all have in Christ. And thank you that you have been pleased to, uh, to call us from darkness to light and to a living, precious relationship uh, with your Son. And I thank you for each one that is here, and I pray that our time together would be uh, pleasing to thee, and it would be helpful to our own thinking process as we just consider various uh, facets of the Christian life, and especially this area of the decrees of God, that you would give us insight and understanding into these, these biblical terms and biblical realities in such a way that it would redound to thy glory, and it would be uh, for the good of our own souls. And we thank you for our, our brother, Rich Hundman. We thank you for his faithfulness, his love for Christ, and pray even these moments that you would uh, give him peace of soul and heart and continue to, to promote healing in his body and encourage him in Christ. And we, we thank you again for the time together and, and just pray for your blessing now. And I uh, would pray for the help of your Holy Spirit uh, these moments just to um, interact with your truth and, and convey it in a way that is honoring to thee and would, would truly be of assistance to our minds and, and to our hearts and it would all ultimately be for thy glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're turning here to um, this, this, our studies in the third chapter of London Baptist Confession uh, of God's decree. And the, the chapter consists of uh, seven different paragraphs. Up to this point, we've worked our way only through the, uh, the first three. Today, we want to uh, make progress uh, beginning in, in, in paragraph four and getting to, to paragraph five. And um, I thought it might be helpful just to kind of flow into it to do a, a quick review of uh, what we have considered up to this point. And so the review that you have in front of you is just to try to, to glean some high points from what we have already uh, considered. So if you notice in your, in your notes, uh, first of all, just um, review about a definition of what we're talking about, uh, the eternal plans of God whereby before the creation of the world he determined to bring about everything that happens and then robert shaw a little bit more of an expansive definition uh, by the decree of god has meant his purpose or determination with respect to future things or more fully 
his determinate counsel, whereby from all eternity he foreordained whatever he should do or would permit to be done in time. And then from the Catechism, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And this is really at the heart of the, the concept, foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Um, the decrees of God have a, a comprehensive uh, dimension, Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And I, I think this is one of the sort of the peace-producing aspects of the decrees of God. That it's not limited to one facet of life or the other, but it's all-encompassing and, and comprehensive. Um, we noted that the glory of God is the final cause of all his decrees. Uh, Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Um, and then uh, specifically, we, we zeroed in on predestination. While God's decree is his purpose as to all things, his predestination may be defined to be his purpose concerning the everlasting destiny of his rational creatures. His election is his purpose of saving eternally some men and angels. Election and reprobation are both included in predestination. It's from R.L. Dabney. And then a, a section of scripture that is helpful to this thinking process is Romans 8.28. Um, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he uh, he foreknew, excuse me, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. In Ephesians 1, 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And then another text, or a part of a text in Acts 4.28, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. And then we, we touched on the more sobering doctrine of reprobation. Um, the London Baptist Confession just a, has one sentence, others being left to act in their sin, to their condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. And the Westminster Confession is um, more elaborates more on this. Uh, the rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extend, extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. Uh, Grudem wrote, Reprobation is the sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and thereby to manifest his justice. Burkhoff, that decree of God whereby he has determined to pass some men by with the operation of his special grace to punish them for their sin to the manifestation of his justice. Jude 1.4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Uh, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Then 1 Peter 2.8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. So there's kind of an overview of what we have considered so far. And so we want to move this morning into, into paragraph four, 
And the basic outline that I'm using here is from A.A. A. Hodge, a very instructive work on the confession, really just two main points that we'll consider. And, and, and the, first, uh, the first is he writes that election is unchangeable. Election is unchangeable. And the paragraph here reads that these angels and men thus predestined or predestinated and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. And to the text which the, the confession cites to support this in, in, in this particular paragraph is one is Second Timothy chapter two and verse nineteen, and the part of it that is significant is the Lord the Lord knows those who are His. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And, and the underlying thought, I, I think here with respect, to his, with respect to his character, is he has always known those who are his. He knew who they were from the foundation of the world. It's not like he's on a, a mission of discovery to find out who is going to respond to him and who is going to be uh, his people and at any reflection. On, on the character of God impels one, I think, to arrive at this conclusion. He's all-knowing, and his, his knowledge is comprehensive, not only currently, but of every future eventuality as well. Um, so it's impossible that God could not know who are his. Uh, this is a, a text that is not in your, in your notes. Psalm 147.4 says, He counts the stars, he counts the number of the stars, he gives names to all of them. And you know the routine, you drive up and get away from the clouds and it's a clear night and you look up and you see the abundance of the stars and you read a verse like this and it's just sort of mind-boggling that he created all of all of these stars. And so it, it just impresses us with the, 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 the comprehensiveness of his knowledge, his, his knowledge. Another text which the confession utilizes is John chapter 13 and verse 18. And again, the part of the text that is, is hopeful, is, excuse me, is helpful. I know the ones I have chosen. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Uh, other texts which um, would bear upon this, we just looked at this, but Romans 8, 29 and following, for whom he foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Also, uh, John uh, chapter 6, in verses uh, 37 and 39, really make a very similar point to what we find in Romans. Um, all that the Father gives me, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And then John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So again here, you see the continuity between eternity past and eternity future. All that the Father gives him will come to him. And of all that come to him, he will lose nothing. So the logic is, is very similar to uh, Romans chapter 8. And John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So God's infinite power precludes that any would ever be lost. Uh, a second uh, major heading would be, um, it is, it, 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 and this would apply both to, to predestination and election, 
It's not conditioned upon foreseen faith or repentance, but in each case upon sovereign grace and personal love according to the secret counsel of his will. And this is based upon uh, the content of paragraph 5, which is in your notes. Um, Those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose, And the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or case moving him thereunto. I think I missed a clause in there, but you get the point. Um, Some of the texts which are are cited um, in this connection, in this paragraph, are Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And and two aspects uh, of the text, which the confession emphasizes here. Number one is what he did. He chose us. And secondly, when? Before the foundation of the world. So God chose us. We did not choose him. And the time frame here is before the foundation of the world. Peter O'Brien wrote, this is not in your notes, He said to say that election took place before creation indicates that God's choice was due to his own free decision and love, which were not dependent on temporal temporal circumstances or human merit. And and John Eady wrote, the doctrine is that the change of relation is not man's achievement, but of God. That man does not unite himself to God, but that God unites man to himself. For there is no attractive power in man's heart to collect and gather in upon it those spiritual blessings. If God had not chosen them, they would never have chosen God. So the idea is we are chosen to be holy, but we are not chosen because we are holy. And I know I've indicated um, from time to time that election and, and predestination are doctrines that are opposed by many. Um, but we believe, obviously, that it is biblical. And not only that, we believe that it's, it's humbling to the soul because the basis of election is not according to merit at all. We might like to think it was, but it's not based on merit at all. But it's, it's rooted in God's own good pleasure. Um, it's not just that we have clear statements like uh, 1 Timothy 1.15 uh, about Christ coming in this world to save sinners. Uh, but we also have uh, Christian biographies uh, that make it abundantly clear that those who uh, come to Christ have, have no inherent moral, spiritual qual- qualifications to commend them to God. Um, and they see themselves uh, actually as great sinners. You're aware of this when you read the biographies of various people. I, uh, there, there's one, did I bring I think I, yeah, I got it here. One, one uh, conversion experience I like to reread. At least it's good for my own soul. So you're just going to have to deal with it, I think, for the next a few moments here. Um, and it kind of fits in with what we're talking about in our morning service. But I, James, this is from a sermon by James Boyce. He said, this is saving grace, for this is a, a grace which does not spare men merely for a certain limited time. It redeems them for time and eternity. It transforms them from what the Bible calls children of wrath into God's Son. A great example of such a transformation is John Newton. In his very early years, Newton had been raised in a Christian home in England, but his parents died when he was only six years old, and he was sent to live with an unbelieving relative. And there, Christianity was mocked, he was abused. Finally, to escape these conditions, he ran away to sea, joining the British Navy. 
He fell into gross sin. It gained a hold on him. He eventually deserted the Navy and went to one of the worst areas of Africa. As he tells us, he went there for only one purpose, to send his fill, kind of like the prodigal son. In Africa, Newton fell in with a Portuguese slave trader. When the trader went away on slave hunting expeditions, as he often did, the power in the compound passed to the slave trader's uh, African wife. She hated white men and took out her venom on Newton. He was cruelly abused, so much so that at times he was forced to eat his food off the dusty floor like a dog. After a time, Newton fled from the compound, made his way to the coast where he signaled a slave ship. The captain of the ship was disappointed at first when he learned that Newton had no ivory to sell. Uh, then, but when he found out that Newton could navigate a vessel, he made him a ship's mate. Even then, he got into trouble. One day, he broke into the ship's supply of rum and got so drunk that he fell overboard and would have drowned if an officer would not have saved him by thrusting a harpoon into his thigh and hauling him back into the ship. The harpoon made a wound that years later, Newton could still put his hand into the fist-sized opening. Near the end of the voyage, as they were nearing Scotland, the, the ship ran afoul of bad weather, was blown off course, and began to sink. Newton was sent down into the hold with the slaves being transported and told to man the pumps. He was terrified. He thought surely the ship would sink and he would drown. For days he worked the pumps, and as he pumped the water out of the hold, he began to cry out to God. Bible verses about God's love and the death of Christ, which he heard as a child and thought he had forgotten, came to his memory. And as he remembered them, he was miraculously transformed. He was born again. When the storm had passed, he was again in England. He went on to become a teacher of the word of God in that country, even preaching before the queen. It was of this storm and this conversion of William Cowper, the poet wrote, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And Newton himself became a proclaimer of God's grace in England through his own experience, declared amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Isn't that cool? So anyway, um, good testimony from Newton here. And then you'll, you'll notice here, uh, one of the texts that is used is 2 Timothy 1.9. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And the part which the confession stresses is according to his own grace. And, and this is really a profound statement, I think, about the gospel. As George Knight wrote in his very helpful commentary, as is often the case, when, when Paul mentioned, when there's any mention of the gospel and of God, it triggers a statement of praise and thanksgiving and a kind of doxology. The powerful message of the gospel had so gloriously transformed him that just a mention of it launches his soul into to praise and thanksgiving, bringing glory to God. But what is it uh, about the gospel, if we ask the question, what is about the gospel or the elements that, that, cause it, that cause this doxology and what makes it worth suffering for or what aspects of it must be maintained for it to be the soul-saving gospel? A couple of things. One is that, um, that God himself does the saving. God has saved us. Um, this is an aorist, active participle. It's what God has done. Um, and then also the basis of the salvation is not according to works. So God is the one who does the saving. It's not according to works. It's not on the basis of our deeds, not on the basis of our merit. 
but it is in accordance with his own purpose and grace. And this was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity. This is in accordance with Paul's perspective, which speaks of, of God's decision before time and the world began. So these are the aspects of the gospel that are a matter of controversy, obviously, among some, but a praise and doxology on the part of the Apostle Paul. Uh, so for Paul, in, in the scriptures, election is not just turn to chapter 5, letter 3, or something like that. It's a cause for praise and adoration. And 2 Timothy, as you're aware, it's, it's a, a last book he wrote to his son in the faith. Um, and, and, and he knows um, uh, that his departure is at hand. That is, Paul knows his departure is at hand. And so he invites Timothy to suffer for the gospel with him, but he wants him to have a clear understanding of what is this gospel that I am to suffer for. And, and, and so he communicates to him, it's something that salvation comes from God, it's not on the basis of works, but rather of his own purpose and his own good pleasure. Well, there's some supporting arguments I would, I would leave you with here. These are from A.A. A. Hodge. Um, he writes, faith and repentance are expressly said to be the fruits of election and consequently cannot be its conditions. They are declared to be the gifts of God and cannot therefore be the conditions upon which he suspends his purpose. So, so faith itself is presented as a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Um, so faith is not a condition that God foresees, but faith is a gift which God imparts. He chooses to impart. Uh, Philippians 1.29 as well, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So two things that are given by God is one is faith and the other is to suffer for his sake during our time on this earth. And repentance also is presented as a gift. It's something that is given by God. Um, Acts 5.31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And 2 Timothy 2.25 is especially helpful with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So we can share with other people. We can be as clear as, as we would like, but then the spirit of God has to move and grant grace and to grant repentance to their heart. Okay. Um, the scriptures represent men by nature as dead in trespasses and sins and faith and repentance as exercise of regenerated souls, regenerated souls. And regeneration as the work of God, a new birth, a new creation, a quickening from the dead. Faith and repentance, therefore, must be conditioned upon God's purpose and cannot condition it. And just some texts that would um, back this up. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins with respect to man's condition. And then with regard to regeneration, John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Ephesians 2, 5, um, Even when we were dead and our, trans our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, uh, by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works with, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I know from time to time we have made this point when people are kind of moving into uh, reformed faith, 
kind of a, a hallmark that distinguishes Reformed faith from what you might call, I guess, mainstream evangelicalism is regeneration precedes faith. That's a key thought. One must be born again. They must become a new creature in Christ before they are able to embrace Christ as Savior, as Savior. and then that, that gift is, is given. But uh, more significantly, we're persuaded that the scriptures substantiate this fact, especially when it says about unsaved man's condition being dead in trespasses and sins and unable to respond. Uh, also, and we could add this, if man in his unsaved condition was able to process the leading features of the gospel, I mean, if that was true, if he was able to do that, if he could truly apprehend the issues that were at stake, then everybody immediately would be saved. If they really understood what was going on, they would immediately repent of their sins and, and come to Christ. And I'll just read you a text here. This is from um, Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 13. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 13. Um, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. For there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. That's kind of a biblical description of unsaved man. Insanity is in his heart all the days of his life, and then he goes to the dead. So to, to hear the things of, of eternity unfolded and, and then not repent, that's a form of madness. Well, then, thirdly, uh, the scriptures expressly say that election is condition of the good pleasure of God, um, of God's will, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, in whom we also have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. So the basis of election, it's not what God foresees, but it's what he has already determined. And that's not on the basis of foreseen faith, but rather in accordance with his own good pleasure. And again, some of the scriptures, Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according, excuse me, to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, um, Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, at that time Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them unto babes. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Uh, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then a final thought, thought here from Hodge. God claims the right of sovereign, unconditional election as his prerogative. Had not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? If, uh, if of the same lump the difference is not in the clay, so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And let us pray, shall we? Father, I thank you for the time together. Uh, I pray this will be helpful to our own thinking process as we understand your character and your nature and your ways in this world. I pray it would be um, instructive uh, to our minds, illuminating to our minds, and, and helpful um, in our own walk with thee. 
Lord, I thank you for the time together and, and pray that our, our fellowship would be precious with one another and that as we uh, gather together to worship you, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would assist us and help us in these uh, matters of soul and heart. And we pray above all that you would be exalted and you would be glorified in our time together. So we, we commit the rest of this morning and this day to thee. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.